Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon's live with Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Yo. And Sydney critic from the Social Film Network, Debbie Zhao. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. So we have a big show. It is our last episode of the year. It has been a wonderful year, and we are recording from one of our favorite places, the Randwick Ritz, Chris's local cinema. The Randwick Ritz is basically the best cinema. It is fantastic. And we're here for a special reason because we saw The Darkest Hour tonight, which we will be talking about shortly. But we also saw, or Chris also saw, a film that he has never seen on the big screen before. And oh, uh, no, th- this is actually my fourth time seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey on the big screen. I decided that I thought that would be a more valuable use of my time than going to the press screening of The Darkest Hour. And we will reveal, dear listeners, whether that was the right call in due time. <laughs> the fourth time. The f- Fourth time? How, how many times? Okay, so in 2001, I saw it in the cinemas when they re-released it there. Then I saw it at the Chevelle in, I think, uh, 2011 or 2012. And then at the Art Gallery of New South Wales in 2014. And now here we are at the Randwick Ritz. Wow, that's just... Wow, I'm, I'm impressed. I've got to say, I'm impressed. I will say, if you want to see 2001 in the cinema, it's probably the revival movie most shown in cinemas. So you're not going to have to wait too long before someone somewhere shows it sometime in the next six to nine months. Now, we also have several other big films we're talking about this week. We are talking about Pennington 2, The Florida Project, and Downsizing. But first, we are talking about what is possibly a contender for one of my favorite films of the year, Call Me By Your Name, starring Timothy Chalamet as Elio, who got a Golden Globe nomination today, and Army Hammer playing Oliver. In this film, Chalamet plays an American Jew living in Italy, who meets the teaching assistant of his father, player Michael Stolberg, who comes to Italy and begins as, well, I don't want to say too much about the film, because it really, you do want to go in without knowing too much about it, but it is a romance, it is a wonderful romance, and I'm very keen to get into talking about Call Me By Your Name. It's very much a slow burn romance, but not in a way where I think a lot of people, when they hear about this movie, they're going to think slow, artsy, Euro gay movie. But it's all of those things, and yet it's very inviting. I find this movie to be really, really accessible. It didn't feel like a a difficult art film to me at all, yet there's so much um, invention visually in the directorial flourishes and there's so much richness to the characterization. And I think why it works so well is that um, it's so sensuous and it really, really focuses on this relationship between these two men. So we have um, Elio and we also have Oliver. Um, and it's really about the intensity of first love um, and the kind of build-up um, and the final heartbreak of kind of what that becomes um, rather than really about you know the antagonism of what you normally see um, a gay movie possibly um, encounter I think a lot of the time Um, so I think that's why it really beautifully captures that kind of slice of life in Italian countryside in the summer Um, and that's why it works so well. It really did feel like a slice of life I mean this didn't feel like it needed to be a traditional narrative didn't feel like it needed to have the big second act flourish in a sense it did in the way but it did very subtly as that is in many aspects of this film. It was very true to life, I think, in the emotional arcs and the way that the major dramatic events, it's it's about the way that events like that feel to you as a person. You know, it doesn't have to be movie-sized drama for the characters to be feeling huge emotional turmoil. And um, adding to what Debbie was saying, I agree, the way that Italy in summertime, in the 1980s especially, so that bringing this new dimension of pastel and neon tones, um, yeah, the way that, that the time and place is evoked is just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. And I think definitely um, 
I mean, I was lucky enough to have seen it the, for the second time. And I think by the second time, you really understand a lot of the more internalization of the characters. Um, so the first time I kind of did miss a lot of that. So I, I wasn't totally invested in their emotional relationship, but by the second time, you know, little like gestures or even just looks and just how shots linger um, on certain, you know, um, framings like that, that kind of really came through on the second watch. And I think it became much more emotionally powerful. Um, so it's definitely one that grows. Kind of wish I'd made the Sydney Film Festival screening. I had a lot of friends there and I think that it was one of the first audiences in the world to see it. What was it like being at that screening and seeing it for the, one of the first times? Um, definitely an interesting audience. Um, I'm not so sure whether I would have, I don't know, I'm, I thought it would have worked better in terms of more intimate audiences. Um, I think a big audience sometimes isn't the best way to watch something that's so kind of close and needs to be kind of embraced. Um, but still, it was really great to experience that with a whole bunch of people and to see their emotional responses after the film, because that's, I guess you kind of get a consensus about what everyone thinks about the film. It is a very intimate film, but something that makes watching it with a crowd pretty fun, I would say, um, is, yeah, this is actually a really funny movie. It sounds so da um, downbeat and dour, but it's, it's actually a quite a lot of fun to watch, right? Because the chemistry between Ami Hammer and Timothy Chamolet is, you know, there's a humorous element to the, the tension and the way it swings in the first hour. And it's, it's really palpable and it's just enjoyable to watch that kind of interplay between two great actors. It is. It is really a summer romance in the best traditions, but it's also much funner and brighter than that in many senses. Yeah. And the fact is, it is funny because you have what is essentially an awkward teenager being very attracted to a very handsome older man and that has while it has its very dramatic elements to it it can be very fun and incredibly charming and what I found so impressive about this was you expect in a lot of these romances to have these big one-liners and big flourishes but this didn't need to have that didn't need feel the need to you know have these big moments it shied away from that it was true to life in that sense and for that reason I think so much more special and also because for that very same reason the humor flowed so much more naturally. I agree with that. Um, yeah, I was also a really, really big fan of the soundtrack. I think it's really perfectly collated. Um, as Chris mentioned, it, you know, it's situated in the 1980s era, um, but also the way the music works. So it's a bunch of kind of classical um, Italian songs um, and the classical music as well really works well with, um, you know, Elio's character as this transcriber of music. Um, and it works really differently because it's not, you know, classical... Um, like, you know, really classical. It's also contemporary classical, so it kind of gets quite discordant um, and dissonant, and it really kind of matches, for me, that angst of um, the characters that kind of grows um, eventually. And also Sufjan Stevens' two yeah, songs, beautiful. Mystery of Love and um, uh, Is This a... Is, uh, what's it called? Is This a Video... I don't know what it's called. Visions of Gideon. Sorry, Visions of Gideon. Um, <laughs> yeah, those two songs just are incredible um, and work just beautifully with the visuals and, um, yeah, that final shot of that movie with um, Sufjan Stevens' song is just another level. Yeah, those end credits. It's worth staying for them. It's very different. It feels like it's much like the film. It situates you back in the 80s. And everything about this, from the cinematography to the music, I was just so impressed. And there's a lot of talk about this being an Oscar-worthy film. It's getting a lot of Oscar buzz, getting a lot of awards buzz. I don't know if it will win the best picture, but I think it's certainly a worthy contender. I think it's one of the best films of the year, for sure.
Fantastic. So that was Call Me By Your Name. It is in cinemas on Boxing Day. We strongly recommend you check it out. The next film we are talking about is Alexander Payne's Downsize. You may have heard of Payne's work from uh, The Descendants and Sideways. And Election. And Election. Yes, this film stars Matt Damon, Kristen Wiig, and Christoph Waltz. It is a satire of shorts where... Like in the best traditions of 50s films and those Honey, They Shrunk the Kids, people shrink themselves, but not for, you know, a gimmick. They do it for a better life. And for here, economic gain, because we're all cynical. The idea basically being that you eat a lot less when you're a fraction of your size and save a lot of money and could spend time on other things in a miniature community. Uh, Debbie, what did we think of downsizing? Mm, So downsizing. So I think the concept of it... um is definitely the winner of this film. Um, Unfortunately, it lasts about uh, 20 minutes of the actual running time. Um, So I think that his visual, so Alexander Payne's visual humour works really brilliantly to kind of convey this kind of downsizing of Matt Damon's character. Um, And, you know, that's kind of really funny. It works with his, you know, usual quips um, and the quirkiness of it. But it soon transforms into this film that um, really tries to tackle, I don't know, a whole bunch of different things. So originally it tries to go about um, chatting about an environmental message about how downsizing is this, is this way of saving the planet. Um, and so as soon as Matt Damon enters this world of um, the downsized people, he you know, goes into this drug-infused euphoria um, and then meets um, uh, a Vietnamese refugee um, played by um, Hon Chao um, and she teaches him about the value of life. So it very quickly shifts into another territory that you don't expect it to um, and not necessarily in a good way. I'm inclined to agree. I really liked the beginning of this film. The concept itself is brilliant, and they kind of, in a little bit, explore what would be the implications of this world, where you can shrink all these things. What does this mean for interaction with your former friends and family and acquaintances? What does this mean at the economic level, where someone with a median income can suddenly, you know, do quite well on a, you know, miniature dollhouse, essentially? And uh, that was actually my favourite scene of the film, where you had Laura Dern and Neil Patrick Harris in this hilarious cameo trying to spruik it to the audience and us. But then it really just went off the rails. I, it's tried to be very pointedly political, but overly so. It certainly was one of the first films in the post-Trump era to reference some of that political controversy, and it did it. But again, it, I think it played its hand very, very strongly and very, very early. And but my biggest problem with it was that the first half, of the, well, not even the first 20, maybe 20, 30 minutes, had this interesting element going for it. And towards the second half, it just became this different narrative entirely. We went from the story about a single man and what he, the implications for his life to literally world epoch-changing events. And it didn't really gel for me. It didn't make any sense at all. No, you actually forgot he was downsized. <laughs> so you completely forgot about the actual concept of the film, which there definitely is a little bit of a clash there. Um, and especially with the Vietnamese refugee character, um, you know, you think that it's going to be shifting into an exploration about possibly the underclass of the downsizing community and that, um, you know, not everyone can still live in this... Um, like not not everyone can benefit from the economic um, positives of um, being reduced in terms of sizes. So I think after that section, it is still forgotten. So then it moves on quite quickly. And then I think it's about Matt Damon's as his character's exploration about who he is and whether he can save the planet. 
and it yeah it yeah. becomes a bit of everything he wanted to make two very very different films here and he barely made one he for me he said he didn't make the second and on that drug-filled psychedelic rage like that that involved Christoph Waltz that might have been my favorite sequence just because he was in it but all the other actors Kristen Wiig was barely in it Jason Sudeikis I was surprised an actor who's we talked about uh, the excellent film we did with Anne Hathaway earlier in the year Colossal and why isn't he in more of this film I was just confused and Matt Damon he's making all these quite interesting projects and suddenly decides to go for this one that's uh, very out of whack from what else he's been doing I was pretty surprised at a lot of this film and yeah, uh, I, I just wish they'd made the, more out of the beginning and more out of the concept itself. Yeah, and um, I think it's quite notable to also bring up the Asian character and its representation because I think we hardly do see um, full-fledged Asian characters on screen um, and this was an opportunity to do so, especially because she was a Vietnamese and a refugee, um, so there was definitely opportunity to, to work with that. But then uh, her character very got very much got reduced to um making fun of not not making fun but using her accent and her mannerisms as a way to to deliver a punchline um a lot of the time so that's i guess the benefits of watching it with an audience you see kind of how they react to it even if it's uncomfortable um <laughs> and and similarly her character is very much centered around paul so that's matt damon's character um and kind of helping him grow um even though he you know constantly shows us that his character is very much mediocre and there's not nothing really there to root for so it's really hard to justify her character being used as a tool for that um and similarly she's very much just reduced to a romantic interest which is the most disappointing thing about the film i think for me personally <laughs> no i didn't like the characterizations at all in this film and you can't really develop a character when you bring her in what halfway into the story and even then when she barely gets developed so it does so that was downsides you can have quite a few problems but that will be in cinemas december 26th yeah i think it's a boxing day film so 26th of december another another boxing day release another film coming up shortly which debbie and i saw tonight is darkest hour this is the biopic of winston churchill the latest biopic of winston churchill there's been quite a few one starring brian cox and john lithgow played the same character in the crown earlier this year uh, this has a number of other famous actors, Lily James, Christian Scott Thomas, and it is about essentially his ascension to the prime ministership and the few days in the bunker leading up to the evacuation of Dunkirk. So we saw a lot of these events depicted in Dunkirk earlier this year. This is from a very different perspective. Uh, this is my point of view, this is something where Gary Oldman is certainly gunning for an Oscar. Infamously, he has never won one. Uh, Debbie, what did we think of Darkest Hour? So it's no big news that I'm a big fan of Joe Wright. So he's previously done Pride and Prejudice and Atonement and Akrenina uh, and Pan. <laughs> People like to forget Pan, but Pan's there. Um, I think with this film, it's quite safe. Um, it's conventionally done. It's a basically a biopic type of historical... Um, film. Um, it's beautifully designed, I think. Um, I think the colours that we're used to seeing with Joe Wright films is definitely lacking, but instead it's substituted with this kind of spo- smokiness of the cigars and the shadows and the darkness of uh, Darkest Hour. Um, but yeah, it's very... And, and when the colours do pop up, it's quite spectacular. Um, my, my, my personal opinion is that, you know, um, his way of bringing the colors to the forefront of a movie is really spectacular but in this film it's it's kind of the darkness is giving the priority um in terms of performances i think gary oldman is really strong obviously that's not 
really going to be debatable. I think that's definitely an Oscar contender this year. Um, and uh, my opinion about the scores. So Dario Marinelli often collaborates with Joe Wright on his scores, and this time it's it's subtler, like it's more subtle. Um, there's piano melodies. It's it's good, um, but it's nothing that's going to really probably surprise anyone. I think. I think so too. I think this is a pretty traditional by the numbers film that's going to appeal to a particular audience. Um, I do agree that the colours were quite interestingly rendered. I think there were some very strong stylistic images in this film and even if they're a little out of kilter with what he was going out for the rest in terms of cinematography, there are some images, particularly in the House of Commons, which are absolutely spectacular. Um, I will give full credit to Oldman's performance, but I did have to take big issue with the script and the only parts really were written were the parts that were either written by Winston Churchill or actually recreations of his speeches or stuff that was either taken from the cab at minutes or from the House of Commons, uh, it was very much show, tell, don't show. We would, things were brought in, we were, characters, were, plots, lines were mentioned, things, they just, there was no expected knowledge of history or events. And the fact is, people who go to see this film, you'd expect typically they'd be interested in this sort of subject area and would know basic history of what was going on at that time. They really do spoon feed it to the audience. Um, the other major issue I had with it was um, a lot of the characters, particularly Lily James, Christian Thomas's character, the latter playing his wife and the former playing his uh, stenographer, it was very problematic that essentially almost every line of dialogue they had was about lionizing him or talking about how great he was or trying to talk about him as a character rather than their interplay or themselves. I mean, Lily James played a great character. I think they'd given her the chance to develop we could have got to know a lot more but when they tried to shoehorn some character development in it was in one sequence and very high and very rush so that did bother me quite a bit yeah um i read an interview recently with kristen scott thomas um and she mentioned that you know in order to sign her on to the film um she really demanded extra scenes for her character um and it does come through because it doesn't feel natural. There are some scenes where it's just her and she's saying something and it doesn't, it just feels out of place. It doesn't feel like it's connected to the story. It just feels like it's there. Um, and it's very much because the film is very much about Winston Churchill and it's not about them. Um, I think mostly Lily James's character does only serve to give a little bit of context about Dunkirk um, for Churchill. Um, but other than that, she's there to serve his purposes, um, essentially, to, to help him type his speeches and to witness um, how great he's, he writes them. Um, but yeah, other than that, I don't think the female characters in this are necessarily the best. Um, yeah, so it does feel like a little bit pointless to, to kind of add those scenes in um, with Kristen Scott Thomas when they just didn't feel like they belonged in the film at all. Yeah. It, it did bother me too. And uh, I guess the other thing that bothered me was we talked about the disaster artist last week, a really great depiction of the filming of The Room. And there is an infamous scene in The Room where a character declares that they have cancer and it is never brought up again. It is one of the bigger jokes of the film. This sadly actually happens in this film. A character, a very important character, declares they have cancer. It is obliquely referenced visually later in the film, and it's never brought up again until a title card which says this person died of cancer. They should have watched Tony Wiseau film. They should have learned from the room. It was really badly handled, and it was just one of the scripted problems that just did not work well for me at all. <laughs> so that was. That was Darkest Hour. That will be in cinemas shortly. So what you're saying is I made the right choice seeing 2001 again. I, I'm actually really keen to see 2001 again now after that. It's been a few years. It really sings in a cinema because you can't appreciate the pacing of the visuals and like the splendor of taking in the incredibly intricate 
designs of the spacecraft and the vistas of space as you know when you see it in a in a cinema it's it's hypnotic and transporting I'm, I'm i'm pretty keen to watch it again it's not my favorite kubrick film my favorite is clockwork orange but it is spectacular i learned the other day how they did one of the famous scenes um the scene where the uh, astronaut is walking up on the outside of the wall they reverse the camera and reverse the set at the same time it's just absolutely spectacular incredibly creative special effects work throughout that film that holds up to this day indeed so that is playing at the Randwick Ritz and um, the other film we are talking about is Florida Project from Tangerine director Sean Baker it is starring William Willem Dafoe excuse me and Debbie just saw it Debbie what did you think of Florida could you tell us about Florida Project and what you thought of it so basically Florida Project um, follows this child um, Mooney in um, as her ventures in this with her friends and her and her mom um, in this budget motel um, in America and so it's very much in the shadow of Disneyland for a lot of this film and what I loved about this film mostly was just how well it shot it from a child's perspective um, so a lot of this film is kind of shot in this kind of neorealism style so it's shot on 35 millimeter um, and the colors of the motels really pop through and so it's it kind of creates this almost hyper real but it's still very much grounded in in the struggles of the underclass um, in, the, in America um, I think what yeah as I mentioned what works most brilliantly is just the way you see it from her point of view so it doesn't necessarily through her innocence and her naivety isn't it doesn't completely shield it's not completely shielded from the film um all of the struggles that her mother kind of goes through um to to keep them both um surviving but I think um I think that's what makes it so great. I think that's what made it so long-lasting after I watched the film was that when you realise that at the beginning it's kind of like this, you know, idealistic, um, beautiful landscape that they create for themselves, this, you know, ideal version of what childhood should be. Um, it's ultimately broken by this um, also realisation, the realist, realistic um, realisation that that is not completely real um, and it is not... Um, it's, it's just something that they create. But I think it still remains quite optimistic, and I think that's what remains really special about the film. Fantastic. So that was The Florida Project. And the other film we're going to talk about is Pannington 2, starring Ben Whishaw and Hugh Grant and Hugh Bonneville, basically all the English Hughes, uh, based on Michael Bond's creation, one of favorite of my, a mainstay of my childhood. What do we think of Pannington 2? Paddington 2 is everything you hope that it will be. So if anyone's seen Paddington, the first film from Porkin as well, um, you know that it's really just beautifully made. Um, it's really funny um, and it just has a lot of heart. And the second one really just takes all of the good elements of the first one and just takes it full um, and it just runs with it. So it's really beautifully designed. So it's, it feels really practical and handmade. So there's this pop-up um, book sequence, which is just done really nicely. Um, and it has a kind of Wes Anderson style feel to it. So it's costumings and it's um, um, just production design. is just, it's really funny in the way that it looks as well. Um, so I think, and, yeah, and the actors, they make fun of the actors. Like Hugh Grant plays multiple characters um, incognito as an actor. Like he plays, an, <laughs> he does play an actor in the film. Um, yeah, it just has a lot of heart going for it. And there's just a lot of slapstick comedy and it just works really brilliantly with it all so I think it works not only for children but it works really great for adults as well 
Fantastic. So that's one for the kids and the adults. That's Pannington 2. And the other thing we are talking about is Kino Sydney. Kino Sydney is an amazing filmmaking venture. They hold, as they term it, open mic filmmaking nights once a month, the first Monday of every month. And this weekend was a wonderful thing called Kino Cabaret. Yes, it's a tradition all around the world at various Kino cells, since Kino is an international organization where people have 48 to 72 hours to work together on as many films as possible. It's an, an event that encourages people who maybe have dreamed about stepping their foot into filmmaking but have found it a little bit too... What's the word? Difficult to access. I don't know. If I, could, I could talk from my perspective. I mean, I like making short films. I certainly did in the high school. I certainly have done it a little bit over the years. But I... I haven't, I haven't been to film school or such, and I really love the experience. And this weekend, I got to go along, and I got to meet with... Daunting is the word. Daunting, yes, that's fair. And we, you do, so we certainly do find it daunting. And this weekend, I personally got to go along. I know Chris has been before, but I got to go along and meet with a number of wonderful people it's who a, do... Yeah, it's a great community. It's a great community who have built up this amazing projects and amazing camaraderie. And I can't believe in the course of 48 hours how many, not only how many films made, but how many great, fun short films made. Everyone's collaborating. It was such a great environment. It was such a great experience. It absolutely is. If you want to be part of Kino, they'll be back again in 2018, now held with a, a event, monthly event, now held at Sun Studios in Alexandria, which is a beautiful space. Um, yeah, first Monday of every month, come along to Kino. Bear it in mind if you're into films, filmmaking, all of that. What was your favorite film you made this weekend? Uh, the one I directed. Other than that, it would be the movie where I hide in a bin and turn into an ibis. Right. Yeah, this, 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 this actually happened. Uh, I, I made a film about ghosts that haunt people. There was another one about a shark attack. It, it's, and there was an airline pilot. It was, yeah. it was really, it's very eclectic. It's, I think that's the word. It's, it's a very eclectic bunch of people. Yes. Um, there's a, a lot of creativity and ingenuity of, about making something with nothing. So we really do encourage you to come along. We will certainly be there next month. Um, we also want to give a shout out to Stephen Hill. Uh, Stephen, our listener, he's uh, given us some wonderful feedback on the show recently, including our commentary on Killing the Sacred Deer, which I know, Stephen, you were quite a fan of. I know we weren't the biggest fans of it on the show. Yeah, I had problems with the way it went, but it's a movie that I still appreciate and I'd still recommend it to anyone who's a film buff because it's technically so good and it's definitely an interesting film that takes risks. Yeah, I have to agree. It's an amazing discussion piece. And what the thing about Killing of Sacred Deer is I think we were kind of in the minority. I mean, most people seemed to really like this film. Um, Debbie, did you? I'm in the minority as well, so I would be joining you. Um, I just had a problem with the way that they spoke for the entire film, so the mechanical... Um, and I just didn't feel like there was any reason for them to be speaking in that way. Um, so in The Lobster, there was a reason why they spoke that way because there was this connection about couples and relationships. But in this one, it's this world that you just have to buy into. So I know people who really love this film and they really just bought into the way they spoke. But for me, you know, after two hours, that didn't, that didn't happen. So I think I just wasn't convinced by a lot of the premise. And um, yeah, spe specifically just the delivery of the dialogue I had a lot of problems with. But I will have to say about this film, it is more than almost anything else, with the exception maybe of Mother, it has been such fodder and such fun to discuss among critics and among friends, among everyone, because it is such a great film to debate and take apart. So Stephen, thank you so much for feedback. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for sending us your top 10 list for the year. I must confess, I'll need to catch up on two films I wanted to see and just let pass me by, Lady Macbeth and Spore. 
before we uh, put together our top 10 lists. Yes, because this is part of Stephen's top 10 list. Oh, I have to see those two. Um, two were excellent ones I saw this year. Manchester by the Sea and Graduation were also in the top 10 list. I strongly recommend Manchester by the Sea. Um, one we are also hoping maybe in our top 10 list, we are seeing it at midnight tonight, is The Last Jedi, and we could not be more excited. Yeah, um, I'm hearing really good things. I'm always excited for Star Wars, even though I rarely love the movies, because I just have this sentimental attachment to it from childhood, and some things can never be extinguished. And that, I guess, is the, the love for Star Wars that I've tried to strangle, but, have, you know, like Vader, I was forced to release and just accept... Yeah, well, look, I, I just the dark side is with me always. <laughs> the dark side, as you you heard it here first, the dark side is with Chris. No, I mean, for me, it's look, my dad, my parents, my a lot of my family were roughly my age when the Star Wars films came out. And I love that every year, every two years, I can go out with my mates and I can see a new Star Wars film. It is spectacular. I think we should soak up the enjoyment of Star Wars now before the new annual tradition thing completely makes us sick of it. Yeah, the Han Solo film, I'm not so excited about. It has not had the best. Uh, yeah, um, it, 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 it hasn't, the rumors haven't been great, but look, they may do stuff about the older public. There are any number of Star Wars films they could do if they're going to do one every year for the rest of our lives and our children's lives. So we have that to look forward to. Um, that is our last show for the year, if you can believe it. It, is, it has been a wonderful 2017. We have had an absolute brawl bringing films and movies and debating and discussing uh, festivals and all. We will be back in January. First off with a best of 2017 show. Now, we didn't want to do the best of 2017 until 2017 had happened. So we will be back next year with that. We'll also be doing a lot of award season coverage. We go into Oscars season and all that. And stay tuned to see which beloved celebrity's career and reputation has been ruined when we return (laughs) in 2018. (laughs) Yes, please do stay tuned for that. Debbie, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for coming to the Ritz and thank you for joining us on Film Fight Club. Thanks so much. I've loved it. Really enjoyed it. And you can see Debbie or read Debbie's work on the Social Film Network. We'll be back next year. Keep listening to the 2SCR. Enjoy movies and have a wonderful night. May the Force rock you on the dark side. Well, may the Force, may the Force rock you. May the Force rock us all. May the Force rock us all. Good night. That's the wrap. That's the wrap. You should say thanks to your audience. Yeah. <laughs>